Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. Great show today. We have Claudio of Guild Extracts and Guild Brands. That's a top five selling extract brands in California. Uh, we get into a lot of great topics about how to build a concentrate brand, how to distribute it, get it into different dispensaries, his current decision of whether to go public and go through the Canadian markets or continue the fight uh, state by state in the US. It's fascinating. You're going to learn a ton. I learned a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Well, Claudio, thanks so much. Uh, Guild is a brand that a lot of people know, particularly in California. But for anybody who doesn't know, uh, why don't you just start us out with uh, what, what is Guild? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, so Guild Enterprises is a family of cannabis brands. Uh, we, we were founded officially as a corporate entity at the beginning of 2015. And the brand family, you know, we refer to it uh, as a sea to sale family of brands in that it spans all of the major key segments of the industry. Um, and those brands are Guild Genetics, Guild Seeds, Guild Nursery, Guild Cannabis, which is our branded flowers uh, um, brand, Guild Extracts, and The Guild, which we use for our retail stores. Um, and basically, Guild Enterprises is, is really just, a, just an IP holding company that, that, that holds all those brand assets, manages those brand assets, and as they get utilized in the marketplace, um, those brand assets are licensed to the companies that are utilizing them. And those of us that are part of the guild uh, usually are involved in those operating companies, at the very least on a management consulting level. Um, and we're delegates of sorts uh, to ensure that where the brand is instantiated in the marketplace, uh, we are ensuring that it's you know, following our guidelines, our mission, our ethos, um, our best practices. Uh, so, so that's roughly how it's structured. Got it. So I think you're best known uh, for the Extracts brand, which I, correct me if I'm wrong, is a top five selling brand in California. Congratulations on that. That's a, that's an awesome one. Um, why do you think that brand has been so successful? What is it about Guild Extracts that has people um, really interested? Sure. Well, I, I think there's a couple things there. Um, well, one is really uh, the innovation side of it. Um, you know, we, we started the brand by working, um, by essentially gaining exposure amongst the kind of core industry insiders and connoisseurs in the places where they would, you know, congregate uh, most, uh, most commonly. And that would be things like in the secret sessions and, and a lot of the underground um, cannabis events, as well as the major cannabis events like the Cannabis Cup and Chalice and High Times. And as I'm sure you know, that's where um, the core kind of demographic of the cannabis industry has largely lived. And then digitally, that's been on Instagram. So we've really kind of focused our attention on... Um, on engaging with our customers in those arenas and by delivering them um, pretty straightforward value proposition in terms of, you know, bringing them you know, very high quality extracts that are made um, in a very boutique artisanal fashion. Um, and I think they've responded really well to the fact, like you find in other industries, you know, if you find, for example, a beer connoisseur or a wine connoisseur, they tend to respond most positively 
to um, to products that are made in that very high touch craft style, where the brewmaster or the winemaker in this example um, really pay attention to their craftsmanship and they come from the industry, right? There, it's not just a, you know a group of executives here that decided to get in the cannabis industry, but but we are part of the industry itself. We're born from within it. And we bring a great deal of pride and passion to our craftsmanship. And I think our customers see that first and foremost, and there's a lot of resonance there. And then secondly, the actual product that we're making, again, with the innovation is, uh, is something that they've, uh, that they've found very appealing. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that innovation um, and kind of unpack that a little bit. But it's things like our molecular isolates, uh, our THCA crystalline, which I think has become the most popular. Um, so those were kind of the, the primary drivers, I believe. Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up sort of where you guys come from and how you're a part of the industry because I see so much, there's no other way to put it, dumb money uh, coming into the industry and thinking, oh, well, I'll buy some extraction machines, I'll make extractions. And the the landscape has just been flooded with these kind of companies. How does it make you feel when there's people that come in that know so little about your business and just assume it's a turnkey sort of solution? Sure. Um, well, on the one hand, it's to me, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily like turn me off or make me upset or anything because I, I find it to be the natural course of business. Um, as this industry matures, this is naturally what's going to happen. Um, I, I kind of by analogy come from the natural products industry where I started some organic product companies and the same thing happened there. You know, that, that, that our industry was, was, uh, was largely, it was very insular industry, a very niche industry. And most of us that were involved were people that came from the inside that were environmentalists and um, hippies and different people that kind of came from that niche lifestyle and created organic products because it's what we wanted to see in the world. We didn't do it as a market opportunity. And I'm generalizing here, but for most of my yeah. peers in that industry, you know, we did it because we wanted to see that change in the world. We wanted to consume the types of products that we were creating. And so it was really born out of that, out of that internal ethos that drove that market. But sure enough, like any other industry, as the industry matures, um, it starts to, and starts to appeal to more mainstream audiences. It's, it's going to eventually catch the interest of, of broader market, you know, a broader market, um, uh, you know, business minds, and and then in in is going to rush in that 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 type of talent and interest. Um, so on the one hand, I see it as being f totally natural. Um, on the other hand, um, there's obviously a lot of missteps that happen in that, because you know I used the words earlier where the executives kind of come in and and that's what you're finding now. You're finding a lot of you know big big business uh, in whether it's in pharma or or or, or alcohol spirits. Um, tobacco starting to come into the industry and a lot of money is kind of following it. And I think a lot of rash assumptions are being made that you can just kind of crack open a best practices playbook that comes from big business and, uh, you know, create a brand and, and get to work and starting to sell your wares. But the reality is a lot of them don't, aren't sensitive to the timing uh, of their, of their deployments. And they're just realizing that, that look, the market isn't, isn't, exactly there at least not in california where you can just create a, a brand a facade of a brand and fill it with just ordinary products and expect it all to sell 
Um, in more mature markets, that's, I think, something that's a little bit more uh, possible and viable um, that you can just kind of you know, drive it through good branding and marketing and, and capital. Um, but, but in this industry, it's still, I think, very much about um, it's still insular enough where your reputation is gained by the quality of the products that you make. Mm. And if you're not really creating something amazing and kind of just rushing it in and glossing over these details, um, you're going to have a hard go of it. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of the kind of a lot of the newcomers in the industry. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up quality because to myself or you or someone that um, is knowledgeable about concentrates, it's it's clearly a better product. There's there's different classes of concentrates. That's clear. But to a new consumer um, who has limited experience with cannabis, how do you differentiate? You know, how do you educate the new consumer? There's so much noise out there now. You know, how, how do you educate them that your quality is is above the rest? Okay, well, um, you know, I mentioned in terms of what you said that, like, you asked what what makes Guild Extract stand out, and it's really been the the quality. That's kind of the shortest answer. Um, it's really a high quality product, and so for the connoisseur, that's kind of empirically evident. Right? They 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 smell the product, they taste the product because they know cannabis. It just is immediate um, that they that they understand this is a high quality product. But as we kind of get a little bit more mainstream and you get a recreational uh, user or just, or just general medical user that's not a, that's not a connoisseur, that, hasn't really, that, that doesn't make it the, their lifestyle, um, they're not as able to easily discern high quality from low quality. And so that's where I think you need to start layering in um, education and information in terms of helping them understand you know, sometimes on a most basic level, the chemotypes, what's a sativa versus an indica, you know, what are these, you know, educate them about just strains in general that, that the rest of us take for granted. And then going into more detail around, you know, types of extracts and, and, and what effects it can have on you and what, what sensory analysis you might bring to bear in, in, in analyzing its quality from its flavor profile and its aromatics to its, to its taste and, and its chemical composition, you know, those are things that ultimately, again, with a general consumer, you would have to go through a bit of education. And we're kind of at that point right now. So we've kind of hung our hat historically on, on, a, on, on marketing, so to speak, to the connoisseur. So that has not needed to uh, really come into play, this level of education. But we're right now at that cusp where we're going to have to start to do that if we're going to appeal to a more, you know, to this emerging mainstream recreational audience. And that's happening kind of in real time. Um, so, so it'll be interesting to see how we go about that because it's a very kind of capital intensive uh, way yeah. of content marketing ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get into the uh, the capital portion uh, in a little while, but I, you mentioned the THCA product, um, which you probably are best well known for. Uh, take us through a little bit of that creation of that product, and you know why is it so different? Uh, maybe just help people understand THCA a little bit. Sure. Um, well, I think backing up a little. Um, sometimes the way that we like to characterize this uh, is. You know, a lot of, I think, what the kind of uh, cannabis 1.0 trajectory has looked like, at least in the concentrates um, segment, has been really this race to the top, right? 
Um, people have been looking to make the most potent cannabis products out there. Um, you know, we always hear that, you know, cannabis flowers that we might have smoked for those of us that go did that date back far enough to maybe 80s or even before that, you know, your, your average cannabis flower might be in the, you know, in, in the single digit uh, potency, you know, 5% or whatnot, uh, 5, 6%. And I think nowadays flowers are getting as high as, you know, 20, 30 plus percent. And as you concentrate it, you're doubling those numbers and tripling those numbers. And, and I think a lot of the connoisseurs on the one hand, were looking for things like, you know, a great tasting product and looking at the flavor <clears throat> and the aromatics. But really, I think it was potency was the big holy grail that this mm-hmm. kind of whole movement was, was, uh, was directed toward. And so as we started to innovate on molecular isolations, really isolating the cannabinoids, um, we were able to essentially create products of purity that, um, that were transcending what you would be able to accomplish uh, before going through those separations. Um, and so as we separate out THC as an isolate, um, we're able to, again, achieve a level of purity where we've hit 99.99% pure uh, THCA. Um, and that becomes a, effectively the strongest hash or, or cannabis concentrate, or whatever you like to call it, um, ever made in the world. You know, and, and I'm not going to say that we're the only people that have done that. I think you know, globally there's been a lot of people uh, developing this technology over the last several years in terms of how to do these isolations. Um, but I think we're one of the brands that has been able to uh, most successfully commercialize it and gain a reputation for it. Um, but I think that's pretty much it is that people are just like, wow, like I'm not, and, and it's not only the potency, but it's the actual materiality of it or the, or the texture and the, and, and, and when it actually crystallizes it and you see it look like a rough diamond that had, that had a lot of marketing and continues to have a lot of marketing appeal and wow factor, you know, that people are just like, like they can't believe that they're seeing something that looks like a rough cut diamond that has potency in the, in the 99th percentile. And then when they smoke it, it's, it's effectively 10 times more potent than flowers that most of us used to smoke back in the day. So that, that, that I think is the big wow factor that drove a lot of that interest. Yeah. The other thing, uh, my experience with it is, yes, it's very potent, but there's also a sense of clarity that comes from a mental clarity that I think is pretty unique too, which um, I think uh, get, has me gravitate toward it. Um, when you make that discovery, when you get to 99.9 and you know you have this new sort of crystalline product, is that a wow, like emotional, exciting moment or t- take me back there? Yeah, well, just to be fair, um, I, I, in terms of my role in the Guild family of brands, I'm a little bit more on the administrative side. On the I'm, business I'm one side, of the yeah. executives of the company. Uh, my partners are the ones that tend to be a little bit more of the artisans. Um, our, one of our partners in particular um, at Guild Extracts, um, he is um, really the key innovator um, that kind of drove all our product development and R and D, uh, and 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 brought these mark uh, these products to market. And so I think he would be the one to better answer a question like that. I, I I've I've honestly never really kind of questioned him on that one. Like, what but was how about that from moment a like from a business perspective? <laughs> you know, when, when is it like, wow, we have this really cool, awesome new thing to sell that very few people have? 
Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. From the general kind of business dynamic, I'm sure when he discovered it, it was just like, holy cow, this is this is unbelievable. And 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 it was graduated, right? Like like I think with every step along the way, there was greater and greater degrees of refinement and purity. Um, and what was being created and then just incrementally you're just moving f- you know further and further toward this apex right but certainly i think when that apex was reached and 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 creating the technology that would produce something like a crystalline um absolutely i think there was there's just a big aha moment and a realization that this is a completely novel product that that in, mm-hmm. in some ways history is being made here that prior to this event this product did not exist on the one hand and on the other it is in, a, in essence breaking a, 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 a world record in the sense that we, we've now effectively made the most potent cannabis, cannabis product ever known to man and so that became readily evident to us and certainly on the business side you think like wow now think about the marketability of that and what that can do in terms of bringing a product like that to market which which we quickly did but I think first and foremost, it wasn't so much the, the, the business realization, but more so the, the craftsman realization, mm-hmm. if I can say that, of just really uh, loving the fact that, that as connoisseurs of cannabis, we made something that we felt was amazing, that we would be excited to smoke. And I think that was the really big initial excitement there. Yeah, totally. If it's not in the world record book, it should be. Um, <laughs> that's a cool one. Uh, so one of the things that I find with a lot of extract brands is I'll go to a show or I'll meet them privately and I'll try their product and it's great. Uh, but then I can't find it in any stores, any dispensaries, anywhere. And that's one thing that I think you guys have figured out a little bit better than everybody is I can find Guild Extracts places. Um Talk about your distribution strategy and how important that has been in, you know, the success that you've had so far. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, definitely. Well, let me just, I guess, back up. I mean, one way that Guild Extracts, well, the way that Guild Extracts came to being as a company was it was really uh, formed as a joint venture between cannabis operators who were operating prior to the formation of Guild Extracts. Um, So really, we date back over a decade in terms of the innovation, a lot of the drivers that kind of led to the formation of what is now known as Guild Extracts. Um, One of those partners um, is is who I just kind of referenced, really the mastermind, so to speak, that really drove a lot of the product innovation. Another one of the partners um, had, when we all came together, had a product in the market by the name of Zenpen. Um, it was a, it's a, it's a five ten thread, you know, vapor cartridge uh, brand. Yeah. Um, and we came together. They already had traction in the marketplace. They already had a, a small sales team. Um, they were actively attending these various events. Uh, there were at the time close to a hundred store distribution. And when we when we met. We saw the inherent value in the different uh, pieces of value that, that the members brought to the table. Uh, myself and, and some of the guild members, we brought a lot of the supply chain on a lot of the cultivation and genetics and kind of more of that end of the value uh, chain. And so the point here is that we were able to immediately get off to a fast start in terms of our distribution. 
um, by plugging in these different elements as opposed to building them from the ground up. So the respective kind of partners were building their, their own uh, businesses from the ground up. But by the, but by the time that Guild Extracts came into being, the formation of that partnership essentially leveraged that collective platform to bring our products to market very quickly by plugging immediately into um, a distribution network, both direct to consumer through events, as well as through hundred plus store dispensaries. And from there, we just really put a lot of effort into growing out our, our sales and distribution. And that's, I think what's given us, you know, very quickly the reach that you're referring to where in most cases, regardless of where you're at in the state, we should be able to point you to a store or a number of stores in your region where you can access our products. And that is a novel thing. I mean, for people that aren't listening, uh, are listening, don't live in California, don't understand. It's it's very splintered today. Um, You cannot find brands everywhere, or at least there's very few brands you can find anywhere. So that is quite the achievement, but certainly ongoing um, distribution is continuing to be an issue and will become a bigger issue. We see lots of different angles um, from ease and the traditional dispensary route. Um, what, what's kind of your take on the future of distribution and, and what that's going to turn into? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it, I, I often look to other more mature industries um, to get a sense for where we're likely going to be headed. Um, and I think I'm not certainly not the only one that looks at it that way. Um, that if we look at um, the wine and spirits industry and look at how distribution has been playing out, as well as other industries for that matter, you know, it tends to be very consolidated uh, where you're seeing just a, just a handful of large distribution companies that tend to own the, the vast majority of the market share in terms of representing brands. Um, I see it ultimately moving in that direction. In general, I see most segments of our industry moving in that direction for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think the challenge then is going to be where you're going to have you know, thousands of brands that are trying to access shelf space, but they're going to kind of have to move through the eye of the needle in terms of the distribution layer. And now that being said, um, certainly in terms of it's, a, it's an interesting market dynamic because I think that on the regulatory side, there's nothing that's going to necessarily inhibit that, right? Like anyone can get a distribution license uh, as a cultivator, as a manufacturer, you can choose to distribute your own products. But I think what's happening, and we're already seeing some early indicators of it, is that the dispensaries prefer to only work with distribution companies. Mm. And why is is that is because if you have a choice as a buyer at a, at a dispensary to to work with a hundred brands and to fill your day seeing however many you know five or more uh, brands a day and managing all those relationships and just going through the CRM aspect of that yep. versus having one distributor come in and that's your single kind of touch point they're bringing in the whole portfolio you have one contact and then you kind of look at that from an accounting perspective and you know accounts payables and, and receivables um it really streamlines and simplifies everyone's life to be working with fewer brands or at least brand representatives in that regard um but but there again it's like there's huge pros and cons you know that that although the simplification is nice um, the downside, obviously, is that the smaller players, the more boutique players, the ones that don't have as much influence or are not paying to play or whatever it may be, um, are going to be shut out. So I think at the end of the day, it does a disservice to the consumer 
that the consumer will ultimately not see the full range of brands that they could ultimately see and all the range of quality and stories behind all those companies because there's just going to be these gatekeepers that are going to control who the consumer has access to at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's very much sort of the corporization of the cannabis industry. And I hadn't thought about it specifically in that terms. But of course, if I'm a buyer in a dispensary, I want to have a few contacts, not hundreds. Um, But it definitely does do away with the sort of hustle factor of being a founder or a rep in a a new company um, and being able to go in there and get a meeting and and sell your product. So, yeah, uh, a little disappointing to think about it that way. if that is indeed the new world, it's going to require quite a bit of capital um, to be at the top of the list for those distributors. And then as an extension, one of the few brands that gets everywhere. Um, let's talk about fundraising a little bit. Um, you're currently raising around now, correct? That's correct. And what's the size of that round look like? Um, We're looking at about three to five million, and that is for the Guild Extracts brand. And, you know, kind of rewinding to the beginning of the conversation, uh, you know, the Guild family of brands correlates to a variety of operating companies. And so each operating company is kind of has its own independent governance and cap table. And so as money is being raised, it's not to be thought of raising for kind of guild as a whole, but rather if today we were to tell you we're starting a guild dispensary in L.A., um, that LA project, so to speak, would be the one that would be getting capitalized. And so mm. in this example, um, it's the Guild Extracts brand in California specifically um, that is fundraising. Got it. And how is that going? I mean, um, just in general, how do conversations with investors go? You know, what are their main concerns today? Well, it's it's going really great, actually, um, in the sense that there's a lot of interest Um you know, I'd go as far as to say that we're almost oversubscribed, um, that um, the, the conversation is, is great. And, and that's because I think our reputation kind of precedes us, right? And so for another uh, brand, it, it, might not, it, it might be a little bit more difficult because they might be pitching the investor and the investor might be like, I don't know who you are and I haven't heard of you. So therefore, it's up to the, uh, you know, to the business, uh, to the business owners to really go about the process of pitching the investor and helping them understand the value proposition and why it's a good horse to bet on, so to speak. Um, in our case, because we have an established reputation, a lot of times they're coming to us um, and saying, hey, we've, we've heard a lot about your brand. We've heard a lot about your group and your company, and we're very interested in investing in you. I think as you're probably well aware, um, investors right now are actively coming into the marketplace and they're out there you know, sourcing deals, and they're very proactive in that regard. I don't think it's like, let's say, like the tech industry where, where I'm sure they're also doing that, but really there's just thousands of tech companies. So really the investor is the one that's kind of getting approached on a daily basis by new emerging companies. Well, we're right now investors, I think, are actively in the marketplace you know, you know, trying to create that deal flow, looking for the best brands. They're, they're doing their market research. They're knocking on doors. They're asking questions. And I think in that process, they are quickly arriving at a fairly short list of brands in every category that they should be talking to. And luckily, we, we make that list in many cases. And so they come to us. Um, and that makes the conversation dynamic, very different, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so anyway, that's, that's kind of 
high level how that's going. Yeah. How much of a part of the conversation is Trump and Sessions and politics with the investors or potential investors? You know, it's it's surprisingly um, it's surprisingly low, actually. Um, I think what's interesting about that is that the conversation has changed a lot over the course of the last couple of years. Uh, for the Guild family of brands, we've been raising money for the different operating companies over you know for the last two to three years. So I've been involved in that fundraising process, you know, since the beginning. And the conversation was a lot harder at the beginning. And I think it was a lot harder for reasons that I've explained, that our brand wasn't as well-developed. So we were very much on the offensive and, and on, you know, pitching. And the onus was on us to, to really sell our story. But on the other hand, you know, the whole regulatory uh, environment was still not as well-developed. Um, and there was just a lot more risk in the marketplace, especially here in California. Um, now, of course, as, times, as time has passed, and now especially in, in, in here in 2018, um, with the adult use recreational market um, now emerging, I think a lot of um, that, that risk profile has been diminished. So it's been kind of progressively being de-risked mm-hmm. um, as a market. And so um, certainly at the beginning of the year, when Jeff Sessions kind of made the announcements he did, there was a lot of kind of conversation around that. But I think a lot of the investors we're talking to right now, they kind of get it. You know, they've, they're people who are already on the, are on the other side of that hump. You know, they, they, they're comfortable with the industry. They understand the risks on a federal level. They, they, they've, they've, they've done their due diligence in understanding the market dynamics on the state level. And that's a, not a conversation we need to have anymore. Whereas definitely some investors that we talk to, it's like they're not over that hump yet. And you have to kind of start by educating them about the market dynamics and how everything works with taxes and banking and federal versus state. And, and, and I think a few years ago, that was the predominant conversation to be having. So yeah. there's just a lot of educating going on. Now with the investors I'm talking to now, there's no, none, none of that education is happening because they already get it. They're already subscribed mentally to investing in this industry. And, it, and which is great because it's like, it's almost like, hey, investor, do your homework. Mm-hmm. Like, don't, don't put the onus on us to educate right. you about this industry. Know your industry. And if you're ready and have the risk tolerance and the appetite, then let's have a conversation conversation and that's what's happening now as opposed to what used to happen yeah totally i um i really dislike when the first slide in the deck is the size of the potential cannabis industry i'm like (laughs) thank you yeah that's why we're here that's why we're having a conversation thank you um right so a lot of times when i talk to to founders about the details of individual rounds term sheets valuations that kind of thing it's much more sensitive than in other industries, uh, most notably the technology industry. Why do you think that is? Um, are, are you referring to just the general sensitivity around investing in cannabis or, um, or, or you going know, through those various rounds? Yeah, just the, the sort of nitty gritty details of the term sheet and the round and the valuation and, and like the, the real heart of the investing seems to make them a little uncomfortable. Yeah, well, look, I think first and foremost, it's all about risk, right? Uh, and investors always, I think, as their primary kind of barometer here, they're, they're, they're gauging the risk profile of their investment. And as we know, just any business, just generally speaking, is, is fraught with risk. You know, the vast majority of businesses fail. 
Um, and that goes, you know, that holds true of any kind of whether it's tech or consumer packaged goods or just just well-established industries. Most people kind of starting a business will fail. Now you bring that into cannabis and you've got this massive like risk premium, you know, that you have to take into account um, because of the regulatory dynamics, among other things. You know, there's also just the whole nascent nature of the industry, which uh, which I think brings other risks to it. And so I think first and foremost, um, investors are, you know, I think rightfully nervous about the unpredictability of where the market's going. Um, and again, that's on the one hand, on the regulatory side, like you just never know what Trump's going to do. You never know what session is the, the Trump administration and sessions are going to do. And so you can wake up from one day to the next and find that your investment is, is going sideways because of things happening on uh, the federal level. So that, that's a big concern that I think does create a barrier to entry or at least some nervousness around how much capital is put to work. Um, and so I think a lot of investors are, are somewhat cautious and metered in their approach. They're just not like, uh, we're not seeing as often, although it is happening, where investors are just coming in and signing over large checks, five, 10 plus million dollars. They tend to be a little bit more metered, again, and cautious as to how they're deploying their capital. Um, and again, the other side of it is market dynamics. You know, as, as this industry kind of uh, goes through the cycles it's going through, we're seeing we're seeing just very erratic um, patterns in in pricing, like of the cost, you know, the cost per pound of flowers. You know, it's 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 just very erratic. And so, from a risk profiling perspective, if you're investing on that end of the market, um, I, I think an investor rightfully is nervous, and and that does impact his investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So you ra you're raising five million now. You've raised seven total across the brands. I think all the brands. As you look into the future, I mean, without being too specific, are you going to need to raise a lot more money, a little bit more money? You know, what's the future look like in terms of fundraising? Yeah. So I think the short answer is we're going to need to raise a lot more money um, because basically the money that we've been raising is to is to essentially capture the market opportunity in California. Um, the Guild family of brands solely operate in California. Um, you know, as a side note, we're very much a white market operator. Uh, everything we do is, is with the highest degree of compliance. Um, mm -hmm. We spend a lot of money on legal compliance. Everything we do is licensed. Um, and that's something that's very important to us. Uh, we we want to be an example of, of, of a white market operator in this industry. Um, and and because of that, everything we do is within California. Um, I think it's, it's kind of a, a known thing in this industry that, that there's a lot of companies that are definitely operating outside of the state. You yep. know, and and and, yep. and that's the thing. There's an easy, there's an allure there that if you're not able to place your products on the shelves of California, well, I can place it on the shelves of Ohio. <laughs> you know, and and so we've been really, you know, strict and disciplined about just not succumbing to that. And so the point I'm trying to make is that as of today, uh, Guild is a California story, but there's the rest of the country, there's Canada, and the rest of the world. And, um, and we definitely have um, our eyes set on that horizon. Um, and I think as we, as we create, as we move from creating a state brand to a global brand, um, we're going to need a lot more capital to go through that type of expansion, to enter into new markets, 
Um, and so I, I see that absolutely as being something that we all need to raise a lot more capital to, uh, to take advantage of a, of a broader market opportunity. It's really exciting when you talk about a global concentrate brand or not just concentrates, but just cannabis brand. Um, predict when's that going to happen? You know, when, when will you be in the rest of the U.S. states that you can be and Canada and the world? I mean, I know that's a, a big question, but it's an exciting one. Well, you know, it's funny because on this topic of investments, um, you know, Canada right now, uh, you're probably aware that, that, that the Canadian markets right now are, are, are frothy as ever. Um, there's a lot of um, well-capitalized public companies in Canada, particularly in the CSE, that are right now um, looking at American-based companies, primarily Californian companies, to invest in. Yep. We're being courted by by several of these Canadian companies. Um, all of them have their kind of eyes set on rolling you up or doing an RTO, doing some event where they are, they're taking your company public or they're absorbing you into their public company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mention all of that um, because I think part of the allure of that is that it, it does open up a global market. Um, it's, it's certainly not as easy as that, but it does in the sense that Canada is already getting into trade agreements with other cannabis-friendly countries uh, where, they'll be, where they're already and will continue to be exporting product um, to other countries. And so for us, it's kind of a gateway. Um, you know, Cal- Canada in and of itself, I believe, is a smaller market than California, you know, the entire you know, nation of Canada is smaller than California in terms of market opportunity. So it's it's not as attractive looking at the at the addressable market itself in Canada, uh, so much as it is looking at it as a gateway, mm. um, as a way for us to get a foothold in a very cannabis friendly market, and to be able to open the doors to global commerce. Um, and so for us, we think that that can certainly expedite that process. So answering your question specifically is that we can fast track that process and we could be looking at guild in numerous countries within 12 months mm-hmm. if we were to take advantage of the opportunity of working through Canada. Um, if we don't go through Canada and we continue to do more of the sticking on the United States and doing a multi-state rollout through licensing and kind of waiting for the Trump administration or any new administration to, 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 you know, to figure out what they're going to do with the scheduling of cannabis, it's going to be a, a longer process. And so we're kind of trying to figure that out right now, which path we want to take. Interesting. Yeah. Um, to the extent that you can share, you know, what, what's sort of the downside of going the Canadian route and as a gateway to the rest of the world? Well, I think it's all predicated on becoming a public company mm-hmm. and, and that's the problem, you know, that when you become a public company, uh, it's, it, you're very transparent as a company. And that's, you know, and that's, you know, irrespective of being cannabis or, or not, um, just as a company, when you're going from being private to public, um, just it's a very different dynamic within your company. You know, everything, you're in a fishbowl. You know, you have all eyes on you. You've got to be fully transparent. And that's not a, a problem in and of itself. We don't have an issue with transparency. We have an issue the, with the work that it takes to be transparent. Um, and that means the work on the part of investor relations mm-hmm. and, and, and compliance, regulatory compliance in terms of the market regulations. 
um, with your financials and the reporting, it becomes a whole set of jobs in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, you, you would arguably need to hire a team of people just to manage that side of the business, the, yep. the public facing side of the business. And so I think the big thing for, for cannabis companies to weigh in this assessment first and foremost is you know, do you want to kind of stick to what you do best as a cannabis company, which is maybe, which is focusing on your craft and bringing your products to market and engaging with your customers and really focusing on that swim lane? Or do you want to be dealing with uh, investor relations and regulatory compliance and financial reporting and things that really aren't really material to the nuts and bolts of running a cannabis company? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't really understand that, 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 that your, your attention as a company will shift substantially as you go public and you will no longer be doing what you loved to be doing originally. And you might love to doing this other stuff I'm referring to, but most of us don't. And so I think that's the biggest trade-off um, among others. Yeah, no, fascinating insight from someone that's making that decision currently, it sounds like. Um, let's back up a little bit. How did you find yourself in this very exciting position? Tell us a little bit about your background and, and what brought you here. Sure. Um, well, yeah, look, I mean, I kind of come from cannabis culture dating back to the 80s. Um, I was involved, uh, you know, I'm from California, originally born and raised in, in Southern California, you know, uh, I was a teenager in the 80s in the age of kind of sex, drugs and rock and roll, where, where cannabis was just kind of very central to that ethos and the zeitgeist of that time, um, among other drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got turned on to cannabis very early. You know, I was smoking it when I was 13 years old um, and was involved in it as a, as a trade um, as early as, you know, as early as junior high school and high school. Um, and so it was just something that I've been steeped in my whole life and I never got out of it culturally. Um, it's always been a part of my, my life in terms of, um, in terms of all the cultural elements of it, the music I listen to, the, the fashions I respond to the, you know, the, the forms of media that I consume. Um, it's all been kind of born out of, of that culture that I've been a part of now for, for almost four decades. Um, and so that's kind of where I was born out of, but, you know, um, over the years, uh, um, you know, I got very much involved in Grateful Dead culture mm. and that jam band kind of culture. And then eventually, um, found my way going, going to school, uh, went to UC Berkeley. Um, and upon graduating from UC Berkeley, I, I left that culture behind, uh, largely, mainly as far as I didn't want to be associated with, with the business of that culture or anything remotely associated with it. And I got into tech. And so I jumped into Internet 1.0 in the late 90s um, and went through the 1.0, 2.0 waves um, and was involved in some startups, uh, mostly e-commerce startups. I mentioned earlier that I've been involved in your natural products, organic products industry. And that was uh, organic products in, a, in an e-commerce kind of Internet context where it was our primary distribution channel going direct to consumer online. Um, so did a few startups there. Um, and after going a few rounds of that over the course of 10 to 15 years in that industry, I started to, uh, get a little bit into education, uh, working at some incubators. Um, I was a professor of marketing at the green MBA program at the nation's first program dedicated to sustainability or sustainable enterprise. Um, so just kind of dabbled in those things, consulting and really found my way back into cannabis about four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. 
um, as I was consulting, really looking for my next, you know, my next steps in business. Um, so that's kind of the arc of, of my career in a nutshell. Um, yeah. kind of started in cannabis and now I'm back. <laughs> was, was there a moment, you know, four or five years ago when you said, I just, I got to get back into this. Definitely. I mean, I was looking at it throughout, um, but because I was in the internet, it wasn't like I was in, you know, it's not like I was in some, uh, some second rate industry, right? I was, I was steeped in internet. It was exciting as hell. There was just, it was a hell of a roller coaster ride, a lot of wealth creation. So, but a lot of my friends were throughout that time still in cannabis. Um, so I was always observing it, um, and really assessing the risk and market opportunity. But, but no matter how I assessed it, it still didn't stack up to the opportunity of, of internet and information technology. And so, uh, so I kind of stayed really focused on that while on the sidelines, I did observe cannabis as it, as it kind of continually matured as an industry. But then again, finally, um, around, uh, you know, around 2012, 13, um, I just got, I, I, I started to really take a look at it more closely and got connected with some people who were pretty steeped on the legal side of the industry and gave me an entry point um, that I took advantage of and kind of built off, built off that from there. That's awesome. Um, how about now? Uh, a lot of founders listen to this show. They're always interested in how successful founders spend their day. What, what do you spend most of your days doing now? Well, so one thing I didn't mention here in the story of just oh, my background is um, I've, I, my primary focus um, as a business person has been in marketing, consumer branding, uh, multi-channel retailing, but I would say kind of really branding, consumer branding and, and, and packaged goods has really been my focus. And so the primary role I have at the Guild is I, I oversee all the marketing and branding and user experience. And that's ultimately what I love most is I kind of find myself as being like the steward of the brand family. Um, that as the brands get developed and, and further articulated over time and as they get deployed, in various market settings, I'm the one who's really keeping my eye on the brand as it's manifested in the marketplace and ensuring that it's, that it's, it's staying true to the original um, kind of charter and mission of, of the brand family. So that's kind of what I do first and foremost is really manage the brands. But what I think I find myself doing, I think most commonly on a day-to-day -day basis is business development. Um, is, is forming strategic partnerships, uh, finding new, uh, new market opportunities, um, and, and really the partnership side of it is, I think, a big part of it, um, and finding new ways to bring Guild brands to market mm -hmm. and kind of going through that initial state of identifying the market opportunity and going through that initial planning and execution and deployment of the brands in, in the marketplace. Um, so that's kind of what I do on a more on a daily basis. And I do work a lot with our investors. Um, I'm on the front lines of fundraising and on investor relations. Mm -hmm. So that's another side of it. Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, how do you keep yourself informed? Is there something that you read every day, multiple things that you read every day, whether it's in the, in the cannabis industry or, or more generally? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. Um, I don't go to real singular sources of information. I think that um, through various social channels, I'm always just um, seeing what kind of stories bubble up to the surface uh, within my network, and they come from disparate sources. Um, but it's always on the first and foremost, keeping abreast of all the news in the cannabis industry is a primary thing I stay focused on. Um, and that news is across the board, uh, new brands that are emerging. I'm always, you know, as a brand guy, I'm always looking at the new brands. It's, 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 it's really exciting in that regard, seeing all the kind of new brands that are coming to market because they're getting increasingly more sophisticated, at least when it comes to the brand design and marketing mm -hmm. of it, very sophisticated um, brands are coming to market. You know, the product quality is another matter. Um, but so that's kind of one side of it all the way through, you know, funding events. I think that's probably what I pay most attention to is what brands are doing what in the marketplace as far as the strategic partnerships, who are they aligning with, um, what just looking at which companies are getting invested, who they're getting invested by, what their market maneuvers are. Um, I spend a lot of time consuming that type of information when it comes to cannabis specifically. I think more generally speaking, I do spend a lot of time uh, just uh, listening to podcasts and reading uh, blogs and articles about business in general, mm -hmm. about business best practices. I do, because I was in the tech industry for, for almost 15 years, I do subscribe to a lot of the podcasts and blogs, et cetera, from a lot of the thought leaders in that sector because they just have so much wisdom to offer that translates, in my opinion, directly to cannabis um, as far as business best practices, investing best practices, and, and all of the above. Yeah, one I've picked up recently is uh, the 20 Minute VC, which is a, a really great podcast out there too. Um, cool. So given that you are working on branding, a good portion of your day and have created a, a well-known brand give founders listening some advice on branding i mean is there a couple red flags that you see that's just like oh man i, I can't believe they did that yeah so it's something we've kind of touched upon a little thus far that um you know with we have we have kind of the newcomers uh springing into the market and um, a lot of sophisticated brands, but I think one of the big missteps I'm seeing is that they're not being substantiated with, with real, with real product quality on the one hand, but there's like a lot of marketing veneer, you know, you're putting mm -hmm. lipstick mm -hmm. on a pig. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a misstep, you know, that, that you're seeing brands that, for example, flower brands where the packaging is just stellar, um, really, really well thought out. But I'm seeing two key mistakes there. Well, one, all the branding's great, but when it comes to kind of the meat inside, um, we're finding that the flowers are just very ordinary, right? There's nothing special about it, but because they invested so much money in branding and marketing and an executive team that they're commanding pretty high prices for you know a, a, a very kind of beautiful offering, but the product just is mediocre. So I think they're finding that it's falling flat in the marketplace that this that the marketplace is still very much run by insiders and connoisseurs who drive a lot of the influence and so if a kind of brand comes into the marketplace and it doesn't have that level of quality it, it instantly spreads that hey this is just a bullshit brand this is just garbage that they're pushing out here and 
And so I think that's one mistake uh, to try to avoid is, uh, you know, that, that at the end of the day, this is true of all business. You know, you got to start by creating an, an amazing product or service that people will love. Um, and as much as people love good branding, it's like that only takes you so far. Um, you've got to create at, at the core a product or service that people love because therein lies your viral engine of growth. Mm. Um, that if people love you and love what you're doing and just love to consume your product on the regular, um, they're the ones that are going to go out there and champion your brand and share it with friends and family. And, and that, again, is, is, the, is the virality that you want to look for as a company because that can just drive your, your marketing efforts. Um, so that's kind of one thing to think about there. I think the other thing is um, you really need to look at how you're positioning your, 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 how you're going about your market positioning. What segment of the marketplace are you going after? Um, here again, historically, it's been largely the kind of male-dominated cannabis connoisseur. That's been the ones that, that are going to all the cannabis shows that are most active on Instagram, that are, that are kind of the influencers of the cannabis industry. And they respond to um, a very specific type of aesthetic and kind of brand approach in the industry that we've seen kind of predominant in the industry for the last, you know, several, several years. Mm -hmm. um, and that's now shifting as with, you know, as talking about California, as recreational comes online, we're seeing more mainstream consumers come online. So that kind of uh, lifestyle uh, branding of the cannabis lifestyle um, is now that doesn't appeal as much to newer audiences. Um, it's a little bit more rele relegated to that lifestyle niche. But that whole transformation is happening in real time right now. And so I think a lot of brands coming to market are a little too ahead of themselves um, in the sense that they're, they're, they're creating brands that cater to a, a, a mainstream recreational audience. But those people are just kind of coming online right now in terms of going to dispensaries. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think they're probably experiencing some fairly low product sales. Because their customer, their, their really core customers yet to fully emerge and be expressed in the marketplace. And so I guess the point I'm making here, it's about timing. That, that depending on which market segment you're focusing on, you've got to time your brand strategy so that you're hitting your customer at the right time as they become accessible in the marketplace. And a lot of the mainstream consumer, the soccer mom, however you want to seg segment, them, segment them out, they're not fully online yet. Um, and I think a lot of uh, the more polished, newer brands that are coming to the marketplace are starting to learn that the hard way, mm. that their sales are probably lower than expected um, because that customer is not, again, fully expressed in the marketplace yet. But they're going to be. So it's, it's happening very rapidly. And then the last thing I'll just say about that is that as it happens, we're going to start to see a lot of market segmentation where you're branding now instead of just being this catch-all brand that, that kind of appeals to the, the kind of person that goes to Chalice or, or Cannabis Cup, now is going to, you know, you got to ask yourself questions around, am I going after the soccer mom? Am I going after the senior citizen? Am I going after, you know, a more predominant male demographic versus female? Um, am I going after someone price sensitive or the affluent consumer? All that type of segmentation that we see in the normal consumer packaged goods industry will be happening very soon in our industry. Um, and so I would encourage uh, budding entrepreneurs that are coming in the industry to be thinking about that if they're at the formative stages of their business, because that's right around the corner and you want to be focusing more on segments 
and getting strong traction amongst those segments rather than just some catch-all cannabis brand that you think is going to appeal to everyone because everyone smokes weed. Incredible advice uh, for the audience there from someone that has done it and is doing it. Um, uh, Last question. I'll get you out of here on this. How has your relationship, your personal relationship with cannabis sort of evolved over the last four or five years since you've been back in the industry? Well, I, I think I'm, I'm developing and regaining a much deeper connoisseurship for it. Um, I think that historically, I, 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 was, I, I think I didn't have as much of attention to detail on, a, on, on cannabis appreciation. Um, now, especially by you know, working with the amazing group of people that I work with who are just true connoisseurs and innovators on the, on the product development side, I'm just getting exposed to the very finest cannabis products in the world, and not just through my company, of course, but through all the other amazing companies um, that are our peers. Um, and it's just having access to these amazing products just kind of puts me in this privileged position of being able to really develop um, a palette for, for this product. Um, you know, one of my passions in life is actually wine. And I've been in the wine industry kind of uh, tangentially for, for a long time. And I've, I've been a collector of wine and I've developed over the course of 20 plus years, you know, a pretty refined palette in terms of, in terms of understanding all the regions of wine and the various winemakers and the various varieties and all the way down to soil types and how they affect the expression of wine in different regions of the world. It's become a, it's a real passion of mine. And so what I'm finding now is I'm bringing that kind of a, uh, sensory analysis and passion and thirst for knowledge of the product uh, that I've had for wine to cannabis. And although I've been in the industry for several decades, I've never really kind of put it under that kind of microscope and developed that degree of appreciation for it. And so it's exciting. Now I'm mm-hmm. kind of doing that. Um, I've been doing that, I think, more actively. It's not that I haven't done it, but I'm really doing it more actively now over the course of the last four or five years of being in the industry. And it's a whole new world. You know, and if you look at, uh, you know, the effects of cannabis, both recreationally and, and medically, um, there's just layers and layers and layers of, of, uh, of things to discover. And I think that's going to be a whole emerging sector of the market is just the cannabis connoisseurship and appreciation. Mm. Um, and so we're already seeing that through through food pairings and tastings and, and various kind of social events where this type of activity is happening. And so I'm really excited about that. Do you have a preference, uh, flowers, concentrates, edibles? What, what do you gravitate towards uh, personally? Well, it's kind of funny because, you know, in starting this conversation or uh, this interview, um, you know, talking about our TC isolate and how it's, you know, you know, the most potent form of cannabis on the market, um, I, I really swing to the other end of the spectrum. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a connoisseur of, of low potency, high flavor, high aromatics. Um, and it's something that I often draw parallels to the wine industry. You know, and, and this is a, just a side note. It is a shift that we're seeing in the industry in general that you know, you, in the wine industry, for example, you rarely see someone kind of you know, go to a restaurant or go to a liquor store and say, give me your highest, uh, you know, your highest 
alcohol Cabernet. You know, I want something that's 15 plus percent alcohol, <laughs> right? Um, it, it actually used to be something that with, for those familiar with wine, it's called a Parker palette that, that doing high alcohol, higher kind of more opulent styles of winemaking was, was a, a popular thing. But over the last, you know, several years, the pendulum has swung in the wine industry where you're going after low alcohol uh, wine. And why is that? Because in lower alcohol wine, you get more clear expressions of terroir and aromatics and flavor in the wine. And I see the same thing with cannabis, that as you go uh, to the lower potency, especially in our concentrates, you tend to get much more acute and, and expressive dimensions of the extract um, in terms of the terpene profiles, uh, the, the flavor, the flavonoids, the aromatics. It's just, just it's mind boggling. And so I really gravitate toward, I mean, the things that I smoke the most right now are some of our concentrates that we have um, in, in, in the PAX pods, as well as our emerging 510 mm -hmm. um, product that we're releasing here in the next uh, month. Um, so really, uh, you know, vapor cartridges, but that are low THC, um, and high flavor and mm -hmm. aromatics. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's where I'm really at right now. And I think the rest of the industry is, is moving in that direction of getting, of getting a greater appreciation. That's not just about kind of knock yourself out potency, but really focusing a little bit more on balance and flavor and aromatics with, with good potency. Well said. Um, this has been an awesome interview. Really, really informational and interesting. Uh, how can our audience help you? Are you hiring for anything? Uh, this is kind of your chance to, to plug anything you'd like. Uh, sure. Well, I think, you know, we are growing rapidly. We are always hiring. Um, if I wasn't clear about it at the beginning, you know, we uh, basically are operating companies. We, we have a flagship dispensary in San Jose. Um, and that San Jose store, uh, the Guild, uh, uh, the URL is guildsj.com. We're always hiring bud tenders or in various different uh, functions in the business. Um, so for people that are in the South Bay and want to become part of the Guild family, uh, you can go to guildsj.com and send us an email, um, which, which we read them all and, and, uh, and let us know if you'd like to work with us and send us your resume. Similarly with Guild Extracts, uh, we're a little bit more based in the Oakland uh, Bay Area. And if you're looking to get involved on, on that end of the business, um, we, we do often receive resumes online and respond to those that we think um, are, uh, you know, are attractive. And so you can go to guildextracts.com and send us an email. And yeah, we're, you know, the Guild, I think, as a name is 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 a is a collection of artists and artisans and people who want to orient toward a common goal in this case uh you know craft connoisseur cannabis products and if you want to be part of that mission and and that endeavor uh we, we 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 welcome you to reach out to us excellent well thanks so much for joining us claudio it was excellent thank you i appreciate the opportunity mm -hmm.